So I've been thinking a lot about you today, and thinking about you made me think about me, which is usually what happens to us, and just remembering when I was in college, you know, college obviously is a time for learning, and some of that learning happens in a classroom, most of it happens outside of a classroom. One of the summers of my university moment, I was doing an internship at a church, summer was starting to wind down, and I was headed back to my university, and the pastor who I was working for, who was leading the program, he said, hey, before you head out of town, I want you to stop by my office, which I was pretty excited about because I figured, here's how this conversation's going to go. He's going to tell me what a great job I did this summer, and he's going to talk about all the potential he sees in me and how proud he is of me, and he's going to give me a few little leadership tidbits, which I'll be able to break out later uh, on my own and take full credit for, and, and maybe if things go well, he'll invite me to come and be an intern again next summer. So I bebop into his office and sit down, and he pulls out a list. Now, just a helpful piece of information for you. If somebody says, I want to meet with you, but they don't tell you what you're going to talk about, and then you get there and they pull out a list, it's always bad news. It's always bad news. And we spend the next hour and a half unpacking all of my character flaws, which he had seen in me that summer. Things that I said that I shouldn't have said, things that I had done that I shouldn't have done. It was one of the most painful moments in my entire life. It was painful, but now I'm grateful because we all need to learn lessons. I have two goals tonight. One is to make a big deal about Jesus. And number two is to set the stage for this series that you're going to spend the semester in on the Sermon on the Mount. I don't get to be the one to serve the salad or the bread or the butter that comes with the bread. I don't get to be the one to serve the filet mignon or the tasty dessert. But I get to be the one to set and arrange the table for you so that the salad feels a little fresher and the filet is a little bit juicier and the dessert is a little bit sweeter. And what you will find this semester, if you stick with vertical, as you walk through the Sermon on the Mount, what you will find is there was some learning that needed to happen in the minds, hearts, and souls of the disciples. Because when Jesus teaches lessons, it's not just the kind of lessons we're learning in classrooms. It's the education of the soul. It's the education of the heart. And it's the education of the mind. So turn with me to Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. This is where the Sermon on the Mount starts. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. So it says that there were some crowds that Jesus saw. Now the crowds come from the verse before, chapter 4, verse 25. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Essentially, what this is saying is people were following Jesus from all over the place. So you can imagine coming to Vertical next week, and you have people, not just who hail from Houston or Austin or Dallas, but people who had actually driven just to be here tonight from all of those places. You even have a few people sneaking in from Oklahoma, across the border of Arkansas and Louisiana, just to be here. That's what's happening in chapter 5, verse 1, the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. People are following Jesus from all over the place. Now think about this from the perspective of the disciples. These were just ordinary guys. They had no acclaim of their own, just men of industry and hard work. But here all of a sudden they find themselves at the center, in the core 
of an international ministry and all the spotlight that came with it. But now Jesus sees the crowds and what does he do? He goes up the mountain. Think about what a blow it would be to the ego of those disciples because there is nothing more intoxicating than to be at the center of a claim. But there is a a life principle, which I think comes from God. He wove it into the fabric of the way he made the universe that before you step into a new thing, you often have to step out of the old thing. In order to step into the new thing, you have to step out of the old thing. I mean, you experienced this. You experienced this with dating. I met my wife the semester, the summer between my freshman year and sophomore year of college. So all of you freshmen, this could be a big summer for you potentially. And we met, we, we spent a summer interning together, fell madly in love, but then we had to go back to our respective universities. She's from here in Texas, so she went back to her university here, and I'm from Missouri, so I went back to my university there, so we were doing the long-distance dating thing. Any long-distance dating happening right now? You know, so some of you, it's a very difficult thing, but you figure out how to make it work. One of the things you have to do is you have to talk on the phone nonstop. Now, this was back in the olden days, uh, so we didn't text. I know that's hard for you to imagine, but we didn't text. You actually had to talk on the phone, which, by the way, just a little side moment here. I want to speak to all the men because men need all the advice that they can get. Uh, men, this is a big campus. This was uh, one of my first opportunities to get to spend time with so many Baylor students. And I'm not, not going to lie. I'm kind of liking it. I think that you guys are pretty cool, but I'm thinking about all the men on this campus, and there's some guy in here tonight, you're, you're thinking, uh, how am I going to distinguish myself among all the men uh, that go to school here so that I might attract a young lady? Here's a little piece of advice for you. When you become interested in a young woman here, walk up to her in person, look her in the eye, and say to her, I think that you are pretty. I think that you are charming. I think that you are lovely, and I'd like to spend some more time with you. Can I please buy you dinner? I promise if you do that even one time, you will be distinguished among all the bozos on this campus. Because texting, hey, you, you're not even bothering to spell it out. You're just putting the you. Hey, you, want to hang is not that romantic. But you think, well, yeah, but if I send a text, then it's, you know, it's not a big deal if she turns me down. Well, listen. She may turn you down anyway via text, but at least if you did it in person, she could respect you as a man. You might have a little hope later. But we had to talk on the phone. No texting for us because we're old. And we'd, uh, we learned to talk on the phone. You fight a lot on the phone after midnight. It's like the witching hour of phone calls. You start to get in all kinds of fights. And, but talking on the phone is not enough when you're in love. So I was in Missouri. My university was 12 hours away from her, her, her university here in Texas. And about every 14 days, I would come to visit her. I had class on Wednesday. My last class on Wednesday was around lunchtime. And so I would get in my car and I would drive the 12 hours just in time to, uh, to make it to her university campus, say hello to her, say goodnight to her, go sleep on the couch of a buddy. And then when we would spend Thursday together, Friday together, Saturday together, Sunday together, Sunday night about eight o'clock, I would get back in my car and I would drive all the way through the middle of the night, pull into my dorm room parking lot with just enough time to walk upstairs, take a shower, put on a fresh set of clothes, walk across campus to my eight o'clock class. I did this every other week for an entire school year. Now, none of that works unless you step out of the old thing. And what is the old thing? The old thing is just 
being single. The old thing is hanging with the bros. The old thing is I can do whatever I want when I want. The old thing was making good grades, you know, but I had to step out of that because I was skipping class, not something that I recommend. At my university, you could kind of skip however much you wanted to. Of course, your grades were going to suffer, but there was a certain number at which point you missed, then you automatically failed. And I kept a tally in my notebook of uh, absences so that I wouldn't cross that mark. Again, terrible advice. This is not from the Bible, so you don't want to follow it. But what am I telling you? I'm telling you that in order to get to that new thing that you want, you're going to have to step out of an old thing. And we see this in the scripture. Peter, Andrew, James, John. What was their old thing? Their old thing was being fishermen, and it was a good thing. But they encountered Jesus. Jesus offers a simple invitation. What is it? Come follow me. They had a decision to make. They could step out of the current thing in order to step into the new thing, being a disciple. The same thing happened to Matthew. Jesus meets him in his tax collecting booth, offers Matthew that exact same invitation, come, follow me. Matthew has a decision to make, step out of the old to step into the new. So we're thinking about ourselves. There are lessons to be learned. There are things that Jesus wants to teach us up on the mountain, but you may have to step away from something in order to step in to this new lesson that Jesus wants to teach you. So what is it for you? I may have to step out of blank in order to step into blank. You know, for some of us, we're overextended and you're going to have to step out of being stressed. For most of us, stress is a choice. It's a decision that we've made. It's not something that's thrust upon us. You may have to step out of being known As the person who's doing everything, the leader of everything, the first one in everything, the top of everything, you may have to step out of that mindset in order to step in to this new lesson that Jesus wants you to learn. For some of us, it's the exact same thing that the disciples struggled with. We need to step out of the crowd in order to step into the new lesson that Jesus is learning, to step away from the crowd. Why do we love crowds? We love crowds because... We're affirmed in a crowd. In a crowd, everybody's kind of doing the same thing. We love crowds because we're covered in a crowd. We don't feel as exposed. That's the the, the most fearful thing about being a human is that feeling of being exposed and vulnerable. But in a crowd, I don't feel exposed. I feel covered. In a crowd, I feel confident. I can look around and see that everyone else is doing this thing. It gives me a certain confidence that I lack and This new lesson that Jesus may be wanting to teach you may cause you to have to step away from the crowd in order to step in to the thing that's new. And why on earth would we want to do that? Because with each lesson, it gets you closer and closer to the very thing that's in your heart to do. That dream, that passion that God has wired in you. There are some lessons that have to be learned along the way. And each one brings you closer to seeing that thing that you care about so much accomplished. So Jesus, seeing the crowds, the next phrase says, he went up on the mountain. He went up on the mountain. Now, anytime you're reading the gospels and you see the word mountain, it's an important word. Just here's a a list of the important moments that Jesus had with his disciples on mountains. In Mark chapter three, he appoints his first 12 disciples on a mountain. Matthew chapter five, verse one, the sermon on the mountain happens. Matthew chapter 15, he gathers on a mountain to heal people who need healing. John chapter 6, verse 3, right before he feeds the 5,000, where is he? He's on a mountain 
with his disciples. Matthew chapter 17, he goes up on the mountain to be transfigured before Peter, James, and John, where he's shown as greater than the greatest of heroes, Moses and Elijah. Matthew chapter 28, he commissions the disciples on the mountain. He went up on the mountain. Then the next phrase, it says, and then he sat down. And when he sat down, that's what a teacher would do in these days. In our culture, a teacher stands up. That's why I'm not sitting down today, because teachers don't sit down today. But in this culture, in the times that Jesus was living in, teachers would sit down when they were getting ready to say something authoritative. And just a reminder, Jesus was not neutral about his own authority. He claimed to be the exclusive way to God, John chapter 14, verse 6. He claimed his disciples should love him more than their mothers, fathers, and children. Think how audacious that kind of claim is to look people in the eye and say, you need to love me as much as you love your family. He claimed his disciples could do nothing apart from him, John chapter 15, verse 5. He claimed the ability to forgive sins, Mark chapter 2. He claimed to be the judge of all nations, Matthew chapter 25. He was not neutral about himself. He knows that he is Lord. He's just waiting on us to be convinced. So his act of sitting down is an act of authority. We see people like the Apostle Paul responding to this authority. Jesus as Lord. Philippians chapter 3 verse 7. This may be a familiar verse to you. Paul says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of of Christ. Now, Paul, if we turn to Philippians chapter 3, you could turn there if you wanted to. He's re- referencing a specific kind of gain. You remember this list from Sunday school. He says he was circumcised on the eighth day, meaning he had legit Jewish parents. They were doing what they were supposed to do. He was of the people of Israel, meaning he was born of God's covenant people. He was of the tribe of Benjamin. That was his small group among God's special group. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was Jewish, God's people through and through. He said he was a Pharisee, which in his culture in his moment would have meant he was well-respected. He was influential. He was well-educated in his town. He was a persecutor of the church, meaning there was no one more passionate than him. He was relentless in his devotion. We know now that it was misguided, but his zeal was full. And he says in verse six of chapter three, that he was blameless in keeping the law. What kind of man is this who could say that? I am not blameless in keeping any kind of law. And I'm guessing you aren't either, but the Apostle Paul, he's listing this resume. Now, that resume doesn't really resonate with us. The whole Jewish thing, it's nice, we get it, we learned about it in our New Testament class, but it doesn't really resonate with our hearts. But imagine your own list tonight. Because this list of Paul's, it's what made him feel legitimate. So when you walk into a room, when you step into a conversation, what is it that gives your soul confidence to be there? Because we're all nervous to be in that moment. We're all nervous to join a conversation. When you walk into a classroom, are you the kind of person who sits in the back? Are you the kind of person who sits in the middle? Are you the kind of person who sits in the front? And what is it that gives you and makes you feel like you have a legitimate reason for being there? Now imagine that list. I'm guessing for most of us it's something around our ability, our talent, maybe our money, maybe our possessions, who we are, what we dress like, what we wear, who our parents is, our family, our extended family, our name. Some, some of it could be even spiritual. You feel legitimate because of the spiritual things that you do. For some of us, it's our 
specific personality traits somewhere along the way. We realize that if we lead out with one aspect of our personality, we're funny. If we lead out with that, it gives us a lot of confidence. It makes us feel like we have a legitimate reason for being somewhere. The Apostle Paul, he does something crazy. He says that he counts that list of things that make him feel legitimate as loss. Now, at my university, I had to double major. Any double majors here tonight were brilliant, obviously. Um, I had a double major. I was forced to do it. So I have a Bible degree, and I also have an economics degree. If you're wondering why did you choose economics, well, I wasn't paying attention. And so I ended up in an economics major. But in my economics major, I had to take a, an accounting class. And in accounting class, you know, a bunch of you have taken accounting. You learn about the business statements, the financial statements of a business and one of those is a P&L statement, a profit and loss statement. Some of you accountants can do this better than I can. It's been a long time. But essentially, it's also known as an income statement. And on an income statement, you have two things. I know some of you are bored, but trust me, we're going someplace with this. You have one section of all of your income, all the income, all the money that a business makes, all the gain that comes into a business. That's one section. And then on another section is all the loss. It's all the expenses. It's all the cost of doing business. It's the, the loss. And then at the bottom, those two things are combined and you either have a profit, meaning you made money, or you have a loss and, and you lost money. So here's the radical thing that the Apostle Paul is saying. He's saying that list that gives me confidence in my soul and heart, that list that makes me feel legitimate, that resume of legitimacy, I used to list it as along with all of the other people that I know. I used to list it in the profit column. I used to list it in the gain column. It was a win for me. But now something has happened in me, and now I see that enlisted as a loss for me. It's not a gain. It's a negative. Now, Paul's list, can you remember it? I mean, some of it's sinful. He shouldn't have persecuted the church. That was wrong. But some of it was natural. He didn't have any say in it. He was born into the people of God. That's a natural thing. Of the tribe of Benjamin. Some of it was even good. He was blameless and keeping the law, but he says, no, I can count it all as loss. Why? Because it doesn't help him towards Jesus. It doesn't help him towards the one who goes up on the mountain and sits down with authority. So he says, whatever doesn't help me towards Jesus, I count as a loss. And he takes it even one step further than that. In verse 8 of chapter 3 of Philippians, he says, for his sake, Jesus' sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. He says, I count that list of legitimacy as garbage. Now, listen, I know garbage because I was once a garbage man. My first semester of college, I needed a job. And so I went onto my university campus and there was an office there that uh, you could go and find a job on campus. And I walked in. This is before online days. So I'm old. That's another theme of tonight. It's like Jesus, Sermon on the Mount. I used to do things in the dark ages. And so you actually went and you talked to a person. It wasn't all online. And I went and I said, I need a part-time job. She said, tell me your schedule. I said, I have class all day Monday, all day Wednesday, all day Friday. But Tuesday, Thursday, I am wide open. So she flips around in her chair, pulls out a drawer in her filing cabinet, pulls out a little index card, slides it across, and she says, be there tomorrow, 6 a.m. It's on the landscaping crew, which I was pretty pumped about. And I show up the next morning, 
You know, it's early. It's so early. I mean, Jesus created time, but he, even he doesn't like it when it's that early. And, and so I show up, it's early, but I'm excited because I might get on a lawnmower today. I might get to ride one of those big tractors. They might give me a section and say, hey, just do whatever you dream. You can plant whatever plants and we'll pay for it. I was excited, but you know what happens. I show up, they hand me a bucket and they hand me one of those claw things. You know, the pole that's got the clamp on the end and the trigger at the top. And then they assign me a zone. And my job is to walk around my zone and pick up trash all day long. Sometimes it was big trash, big pieces of cardboard that had blown through, you know, the zone. You got to dispose of that. Other times it would be dead animals, which I was thinking like, this is not my job. That's like, seems like another department in the university. So I would pass it and leave it. But then I think, well, what if my boss drives through and it looks like, you know, there's no like litter around the dead animal, but I didn't even move it. And so I'd have to dispose of it. And always there were cigarette butts. You didn't know that people still smoked, but they do. At this university, you registered for class and then they handed you a pack of cigarettes and everybody would smoke and you'd have to pick up all of those, those things. But you don't have to be a garbage man, obviously, to understand the difference between garbage and not garbage, right? You know the things that you put on a wall and you know the things that belong in the bin. You know the things that you put in that special drawer where you keep important things and you know what belongs on the curb. And what Paul is saying about Jesus who has walked up on this mountain and has sat down with authority to begin to teach us the lessons that we need to learn. He says, all the stuff that I used to hang on the wall, I now put in the bin. And all the stuff, all the things that I used to treasure and would put away in the drawer so I could keep forever, I now make sure are on the curb. I count them as rubbish. And why does he consider these things lost? He says it in verse 8. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Paul does this radical thing of saying, I know everyone else is trying to legitimize themselves and give them reasons for confidence. And I have my own list that I could brag about, but I count it as lost. Why? Because I want to know that man who walked up on the mountain and sat down with authority to teach us the lessons. So I count everything as a loss for just the one chance of knowing Knowing him, that word knowing, it it means to investigate, means to seek out, means to inquire about. So in knowing Jesus, there is an intention, there's a mission. In knowing Jesus, there's curiosity, there's a wonder about it. I have questions, I want my questions answered, and there's an investigation. I'm going to work hard. I'm going to put in time. I may even sacrifice so that I can know Jesus. And why does he consider these things lost? For the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. Some of you Bible scholars know that that's a Greek word, surpassing worth. Hooper echo means to hold above, to hold above. You ever been carrying something valuable in a crowd? Something glass, something that you treasure that's important to you and people are bumping into you. What's your natural instinct going to be? to lift it up above your head, above the crowd. When you're leaving the game on Saturday, I assume there's going to be an amazing crowd for OSU. It's going to be awesome. They just lost, so you're going to 
grind them into the ground and there's going to be this great victory moment and everybody's going to stream out of the stadium together and you're going to be shoulder to shoulder and shoulder to shoulder. When that happens, I want you to remember tonight and I want you to watch the dads with their little kids. Here's what's going to happen. When everybody's jumping around and bumping into one another, coming out of the stadium, that dad is going to reach down. He's going to pick up that kid and what's he going to do? He's going to set him on his shoulders. Because when there's something valuable, we hold it above everything else. And that's what Paul is saying about Jesus, who set down with authority. I'm not neutral about Jesus. This isn't just another teacher. I hold him up above everything. So why on earth would I consider gain loss? Why on earth would I consider my resume of legitimacy garbage? Because I hold up knowing Jesus higher than my desire to feel legitimate. I hold up knowing Jesus even above my deep fear of being exposed and vulnerable. Paul even says, I want to share in the sufferings of Christ. Why on earth would someone sign up ahead of time to suffer for Jesus? Because he says, I hold up knowing Jesus even above my own desire for easy living. So this semester, when you travel up the mountain to learn the lessons from Jesus, you know that you're learning from not just a unique and authoritative teacher, but Lord and Savior who sits down to teach with his authority. And then verse 1 ends like this, and his disciples came to him. And that's what we do when we gather together. It's disciples coming to him to learn the lessons that need to be learned. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. Jesus, we thank you that you are a teacher and that you teach with authority and that you teach as Lord. So this semester in this series on the Sermon on the Mount, we've set the table tonight and what we're saying together is we want to journey up the mountain to learn from you. And we recognize there is need in our lives and we want an education of soul, heart, and mind so that we can be and do the things that you've carved out for us to be and do. We ask these things and we believe these things in the powerful name of Jesus. Why don't you stand up and let's finish tonight by worshiping a little bit more together.